Good afternoon, church. A long time ago, many, many years in a distant time, back in the year 2008, there was a military operation that was conducted. I believe, if I recall correctly, it was called Operation Frostburn. The USS Lake Erie, a naval naval warship, was sailing the seas a little bit west of Hawaii. And on February 20th, they were tasked with eliminating a school bus-sized satellite that had malfunctioned and was tumbling towards the the Earth's atmosphere. Now, normally, they would kind of let these things play out. They'd break up in the atmosphere. But there was a risk here because it was carrying 1,000 pounds of toxic fuel. And this fuel, if it landed in a populated area, could be fatal. And even if it didn't, it was enough to cause a pretty serious natural disaster. So the military decided to take action and shoot down this satellite. Now, there was only a small window to do this because as it got closer to Earth's atmosphere, its orbit would get more erratic and it would get very difficult to shoot down. So they had a 30-second window to hit their shot. And at 1026 on February 20th, they fired a single missile and managed a direct hit on this satellite. It broke apart its pieces and its toxic fuel burned up in the Earth's atmosphere, crisis averted. This shot was fired at a satellite that was 150 miles into space at a target that was moving 17,000 miles per hour. That's crazy. Like, you you can't even get lucky and hope for that to happen. This takes intense calculation. I can't even fathom where they would begin to calculate that, but this took planning and strategy and calculation in order to pull off such an incredible shot. But as mind-blowing as that is, it has absolutely nothing on the calculations that God has done in order to accomplish his plan and to take a shot at his enemies. God has a perfect plan to save his people, to establish his kingdom, and deliver the killing shot against his enemies. Last week, Daniel was crying out to the Lord, lamenting and confessing the sins of the people of Israel. He was distraught as he considered what might become of the people of Israel. But now today, in Daniel's second half of Daniel 9, we're going to see God's answer to Daniel's prayer. And he does that in the form of a vision. And he shows Daniel exactly what God has planned for his people and for his enemies. The answer probably wasn't what Daniel was expecting, probably not what he was even hoping for, but it would have provided Daniel, and I believe it does provide us today, with an unshakable hope that God's plan will be accomplished. Daniel learned that while, God may, while we may have to settle in for the long haul, God's plan is in motion, and there's nothing that's going to stop him from accomplishing that plan. Turn with me to Daniel 9 and follow along. We're gonna read the first four verses here, Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. <clears throat> While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, 
whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. My throat's a little dry, so you have to excuse me. But Daniel here, he, he doesn't fall down on his face. Normally when you see an angel in the Bible, people see it and they freak out, they panic and they fall down on their face. But Daniel's seen Gabriel before. If you remember back to Daniel 8, Gabriel was, was the one that showed up. He told him all about the vision with the ram and the flying unicorn goat. It was a whole thing, but he's seen Gabriel before already. And, and the fact that, that Gabriel arrived while Daniel was praying at the time of the evening sacrifice, I think gives us further insight into the way that Daniel prayed. In Exodus 29, uh, if you go there, you would read that the people of Israel were commanded to make two daily sacrifices, one in the morning, one in the evening. And that's what's being referenced here. But it's a little bit odd because at this point, the Jewish temple had been leveled. It had been crushed. It had already been destroyed by Babylon. So this sacrifice certainly was not happening. So why does Daniel mention it here? Well, we know from other passages, like in the book of Ezra or in the Psalms, that the time of evening sacrifice was also a time when people would pray. So I think what's being implied here with Daniel is a measure of consistency in his times of prayer. That evening sacrifice may not be made any longer, but at that same time, every evening, Daniel would offer the sacrifice of praise and prayer and worship. He didn't pray sporadically. He may have done that as well, but he prayed regularly and consistently. And I think if we wish to truly be a church, a people of prayer, then we need to imitate him in this consistency. If you wish to be dedicated and devoted to prayer, I would encourage you to pray consistently at the same time because I think it will help you to develop healthy habits of prayer like Daniel had. Now look at Gabriel's words in verse 23. He says, at the beginning of your pleas, a word went out, for you are greatly loved. And man, I love these string of verses here, this string of verses here, because it shows how deeply in tune God is with his people. Daniel didn't even need to finish praying. God heard, and from the very beginning, he had already sent his answer. All Daniel needed to do was start praying. And from that moment that he began to pray, God had already sent word for Gabriel to go and answer him. When you and I humbly kneel before God's throne in prayer, he always hears and answers his people. It may not be the answer that we would expect, the answer that we are hoping for, but don't ever think that God does not hear faithful prayer. He does listen to the prayer of his people. We know this, and we can believe this because of the incredible love he has for us. That's the reason that Gabriel gives to Daniel. As soon as you prayed, God sent word, because you are greatly loved. And that word that we translate as greatly loved, it's a a noun, and it refers to uh, the object of one's desire. It is something that is treasured and precious to its owner. And it's used in the plural here to emphasize just how precious God's people are in his sight. 
Brothers and sisters, I want you to stop for a moment. And I want you to think about that. God, the sovereign king of everything. We've been talking about all through the book of Daniel. He desires you. You are his treasured possession. You are precious in his sight. And you may not feel that way right now. Maybe your heart aches because you long to be treasured and cherished by someone else. Maybe your spouse has made you feel undesirable or a parent or a friend at school. But I want you to know that you are treasured by God. You are precious to him. He loves you deeply and he is always near and always tuned in to what you are going through and he is always listening when you come before him in prayer. And this love that God has for us, for Daniel, is precisely why he offers Daniel a glimpse into the future in the second half of this passage. Number one, God has shared his perfect plan with us because we are precious to him. That's what Gabriel tells Daniel here. Therefore, because you are greatly loved, consider and understand this vision. So God is reminding Daniel and us through Daniel, of his incredible love for his people to encourage us. Because what this vision is going to show is that God's people are in it for the long haul. It's not going to be an easy ride to the end of God's plan. He's got this incredible plan, and it's going to be accomplished, but it's probably not going to move as quickly as you would like. But sharing this vision in advance, it encourages God's people because it reminds them that even if they're not seeing it in the immediate surrounding situations, God is at work. Yes, there will be hardship for them in the midst of that, but they will be sustained through that hardship until the plan is completed. We are deeply loved. And no matter what we face on our path toward eternity, we will be sustained by Jesus. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 24 to 27. And these four verses are some of the most debated verses in the entire Bible, maybe the most debated in the entire Bible. And some people get a little bit crazy with them. We're going to try not to get too crazy with them. Um, Some people skip over them entirely. I've seen pastors that go through the book and they just don't touch them because they are complex on the surface. I've, I've read commentaries that simply don't even address these verses. But we need to remember, if they are in this book, they are for us. God intended them to be here to shape us and change us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And since they're in this book, we need to give them the attention that they deserve. And at first glance, a passage like this can feel confusing, overwhelming maybe, but if we're willing to dig in a little bit, we're going to find that it becomes quite a bit clearer. So let us dig into this together. I am super excited. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I'm really excited. You can ask my wife. She's in the nursery today, but I came out Thursday after I was finishing this, and I just told her I'm so excited for this passage. It is so, so cool to see how specific God's prophecy is. So turn back to Daniel with me, and let's read verses 24 through 27, and then we're gonna work through that verse by verse. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression 
to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. God has decreed a period of 70 weeks about the Jewish people and their holy city, Jerusalem. Now, when Daniel writes about weeks here, he's not talking about a period of seven days. So literally, it says there will be 70 units of seven. When that language is used, the context determines what those units actually are. Now, we know it's not uh, seven-day weeks because, I mean, if you look at the things that are promised here, that just doesn't happen in 70 simple weeks. But also, in the next chapter, Daniel talks about a period of three weeks, and there, he specifically calls it three weeks of days. He doesn't do that here. So we know that here, these weeks are something a little bit different than we would generally think of. When we get to the second half of verse 24, he tells us of these six specific purposes for these 70 weeks. Those purposes have not yet been fully accomplished and realized. So 70 weeks of seven days cannot be what was intended here. There's other reasons uh, that, that we know that Daniel means 70 sets of seven years, but for the sake of time, Those two will need to suffice for now. As we move forward, though, I'm going to continue to use the term weeks because that's what the text uses, but know that we're thinking in terms of years. So 70 weeks equals 490 years. One week is seven years. And I'll add as well that this idea that weeks refer to years, that is pretty much universally accepted by scholars. So I'm not alone in thinking this. This is pretty standard. So 70 weeks, 490 years have been decreed in order to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and profit, anoint a most holy place. God says after 490 years, 70 weeks, these six things will be completed. So first, he promises to put an end to the transgression. Transgression can be a general term for sin, but because here it's a definite noun, it's the transgression. So this is most likely referring to something specific. In this instance, I believe it's referencing Israel's transgression, Israel's rebellion against God, right? That's why Daniel prayed in the first place, because the people of Israel had wandered away from the Lord and were no longer faithful to him. But God promises here that by the end of the 70 weeks, Israel's rebellion will stop. They will return and be faithful to the Lord. 
The second purpose is exactly what it sounds like. Bring an end to sin. Not just for the Jewish people, for all people, for the whole world. By the time the 70 weeks is done, sin will be a memory. It will no longer plague the earth and those who inhabit it. The third purpose in this 70 weeks is that atonement will be made for iniquity. Now I'll say out of the six purposes, I think this is the only one we can say that has has already been accomplished. We know this was accomplished at Jesus's first coming through his sinless life, his ministry, and through his death and resurrection. Jesus came, gave himself up as a perfect sacrifice for sin. Our sin was laid on his shoulders and he bore the penalty for our sin. And it's on the basis of his righteousness, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection that our sins have been atoned for. Now you and I can enjoy forgiveness, we can enjoy relationship with God as we were created for. Because Jesus was the perfect once for all sacrifice that atoned for iniquity. So that purpose is completed. Number four, God promised to bring in everlasting righteousness. Righteousness that does not and will not and cannot end. So what's pictured here is a time where sin is done, it's gone, but all people are walking in the righteousness of God. The whole earth, everywhere, every person is characterized by righteousness that will not be undone. I mean, think about how good of a place that would be to live in. Because so many of us, and I see it on Facebook, I hear it from from you guys, and I do it as well sometimes, but we regularly just lament the moral confusion of our day. It's exhausting to try and keep up with what the world says is moral. It's just in this constant state of flux where you never really can pin the tail on what is or is not moral. Because what's moral today was unthinkable 15 or 20 years ago. Every day, something is new. Something new is added to the discussion of gender and sexuality that we have to accept wholeheartedly or we're not moral. Our world does not like those who hold God's standards for sex and marriage, those who recognize the the sanctity of life. They are immoral and hateful. I saw a story a few weeks ago. Security guard got fired because he stopped a thief from robbing the store he was hired to keep secure. That doesn't make sense. He's stopping somebody from breaking the law and he got in trouble. That's backwards. It is so painfully clear that our world is in moral confusion. But that's the result of humanity's rebellion against the Lord. But when God's plan is complete and these 70 weeks are up, there will be no more moral confusion. The whole world will come underneath the sovereign rule and righteousness of God. The fifth purpose is to seal up vision and profit. A seal was a mark of authentication. So what God does in these 70 weeks would authenticate the words of his prophets and the visions that they shared. If you think back about what the prophets spoke of, they spoke of God establishing a kingdom, sending a Messiah, defeating his enemies. And all throughout Israel's history, they rejected the prophets. Even today, the Jewish people have not rightly understood what the prophets were talking about. But when the 70 weeks is up, every word that God has spoken through his prophets will have been proven true. 
And the sixth and final purpose of these 70 weeks is to anoint a most holy place. And this is referring to the consecration of a new temple. The prophet Ezekiel spends the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel detailing a new temple that would be the center of worship once Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Most likely, that's the temple being referred to here. So these six purposes can summarize all that God has promised to do for us in his word. Create a people for himself who will destroy sin. He will forgive and save humanity. He will establish a perfectly righteous world and perfectly righteous people. He will keep every word he has ever spoken and he will enable us to worship and enjoy fellowship with him for all of eternity. All of this would be accomplished in 70 weeks. But if you're doing the math, 70 weeks, 490 years, since the time of Daniel... It's not adding up. A long time has passed since 490 years. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. and It's been roughly 2,600 years since Daniel wrote these words down. So, what gives? Why hasn't God accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish yet? That's a good question. But before we can answer that, we have to determine when this period of 70 weeks began. So let's keep working through the text. Look again at verse 25, and I'm going to read that again here briefly. <clears throat> Verse 25 Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So, what we just read tells us that from the time a decree is given to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. An anointed one means Messiah. So the going out of this decree and the coming of the Messiah, there will be 69 weeks. That's 483 years. Can you go to the next slide? There's a chart on here for you that you can see. This whole slide represents 70 weeks. And you can see it's broken up in a few ways uh, because we're gonna see it broken up here. In this first section, you have 69 weeks, but even within that, it's broken into seven and 62 weeks. And we're gonna fill this out as we go to kind of help you track through this. Um, So these first 69 weeks, it says, begin when a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem is given. And the first 69 weeks ends with the coming of the Messiah. So in order to know when this period started, we have to know what this decree was. What decree is Daniel referring to? And this is where things can get a little bit tricky. um, But I promise if you hang with me, you will be absolutely amazed at what Daniel is telling us here. So scholars disagree on when this 70 weeks began. And there's there's a lot of potential start dates that have been suggested. We don't have time to walk through all of those potential options. I do want to mention a couple of the more prominent ones. Some believe that this this word or decree refers to the decree of King Cyrus. And he was the one that allowed the Jewish people to return home in 538 B.C., Two problems with this. Cyrus never mentions rebuilding the city, just like Daniel does here. So that's one problem. It doesn't seem to be the same kind of decree. Two, if you start in 538 and you count forward 69 weeks, 483 years, that leaves you in 55 BC, over five decades before Jesus was born. So that clearly does not fit the timeline Daniel gives. A second option is the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra, in 458 BC. 
This one's a little bit better and has some strengths to it. I still don't think it's the best option because, uh, again, this decree never mentions the rebuilding of the city. And Ezra's a little bit more focused on religious reform than he was on rebuilding the city anyways. Contextually, this just isn't the best option. And if we follow the time frame given, starting in 458, counting forward 69 weeks, that brings us to 26 or 27 AD, which Jesus was live then, but he hadn't really started his public ministry at all. He wasn't really known or understood to be the Messiah at this point. So it's probably not the best option. What I do think the best option is, is same king, Artaxerxes, gave a decree to Nehemiah. He gave that decree in 444 BC. The language of verse 25 speaks about rebuilding the city with squares and a moat. It's speaking of a total rebuild of the city. And it says it would be in a troubled time. Artaxerxes told Nehemiah to go home and rebuild the city, to totally rebuild it from the ground up. The squares here, those are the open courts of the city where people would gather the moats. That's referring to the defensibility of the city. So this is a total rebuild. That, that decree to Nehemiah specifically called for this kind of rebuild, and that's exactly what Nehemiah did. If you're familiar with Nehemiah, you know too that it was done in troubling times. He faced constant opposition as he tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So this decree fits much better with the language and the description that Daniel gives, but does it fit the time frame as well? Because if you start in 444 BC and you count forward 483 years, that brings you to 39 AD. That's a little bit too late because by that time, Jesus had died, rose again, and went to be with the Father in heaven. But the authors of the Bible generally did not use a, a calendar that was structured on 365 days. Their calendar was, they, they calculated years based on 360-day years. And I'm not making this up. We see examples of this in the book of Genesis. We see examples of this in the book of Revelation as well. So uh, this decree to Nehemiah was given on March 5th, 444 BC. If you start on that date and you count forward 483 years using that 360-day that calendar, that brings you to March 30th, 33 AD. Do you guys know what day that was? Palm Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So Nehemiah received word to rebuild the city, and then 483 years later, down to the exact day, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey where he was welcomed and worshipped by the Jewish people as the Messiah. 69 weeks from the going out of the decree to the coming of an anointed one, down to the exact day. Church, is that not insane? Like, that gives me chills, like, even just talking about it up here again. Like, that's crazy. This is why I said at the beginning, the book of Daniel is one of the best apologetics for the Christian faith. There's no explanation for this other than this is God's word. I mean, prophecy this specific it just can't happen from human hands alone. Just like that shot at the beginning, you, you can't shoot a satellite out of the sky uh, on sheer luck. You have to know what you're doing. You have to calculate that out, and that's what God has done. Something this exact could only be produced by the wisdom of a completely sovereign God. So let us take another look at the chart. You can go to the next slide. <clears throat> 
So you, you see up there, uh, uh, let me see, I can't see it from back there. Let me step over here real quick. So yeah, start date, March 5th, uh, 444, end date, March 30th, that is Palm Sunday. And again, you see that those 62 and seven weeks are broken up. That tells us that something significant probably happened in that first seven, but Daniel doesn't tell us what it is. Um, so we could speculate, but, but we simply don't know. But those, 62, those 69 weeks, they happen consecutively. They begin on that March, 4, March 4th, 444, and then end on March 30th, 33 AD. So first 69 weeks took us up to the triumphal entry, and that leaves now one week, seven years. So again, we have to ask, why has God not completed his plans? Because it seems it's, it's, it's been much, much longer than 490 years now. Look again at verse 26 with me. <clears throat> and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the sanctuary and its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. So verse 25 tells us what happens in the first 69 weeks. You have seven and 62 then verse 27 is gonna tell us what happens in the 70th week. So verse 26 implies a gap between the 69th and 70th week. Notice it says after the 62 weeks, not, not during the 62 weeks, but after, and then it doesn't say during the 70th week, it says after these weeks. So everything in verse 26 is taking place in a gap between 69 and 70. And we're told after the 69 weeks, the anointed one would be cut off. The 69th week ended on Palm Sunday. Days later, they took the Messiah and he was cut off. They nailed him to a cross and killed him. And he was crucified for our sin. Again, I hope the incredible nature of this prophecy is not lost on you. Daniel wrote 630 years before the life of Jesus, yet somehow told us when Jesus would come and the Jesus would be killed. But he also told us of the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen a second time. The city and the sanctuary that would be destroyed, that is the city of Jerusalem and its temple. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. His people refers to the Roman Empire. If you think back to Daniel 7, we saw that the Antichrist would rise out of the remnants of the Roman Empire. So in that sense, ancient Rome, the people who sacked Jerusalem, could rightly be called his people, the people of the prince who is to come. This prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when Rome walked through and destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. And it was so severe and bad, they, they compared the destruction here to a flood that comes through and just washes and sweeps everything away. Rome came through absolutely demolished everything in their path. And I think that the war and the desolations here are probably referring to the destruction of the city in 70 AD, primarily. But I think when you consider Israel's history as well, it's hard to not think that it also applies for the rest of their history until Christ completes his work. Can we take another look at the chart here? <clears throat> Next slide. So we've added in a couple things there. You see uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But it's in this gap between the 69th and 70 weeks that the church exists. With the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God's focus shifted from Israel onto the church. The church became God's primary vehicle for accomplishing his will here on earth. 
So these 70 weeks, they were decreed about Israel. That's what it said at the very beginning of this in verse 24. I've decreed these 70 weeks about Israel, about the Jewish people, not the church. So when God shifted his focus from Israel to the church, the pause button was hit on these 70 weeks. 69 weeks completed, hit pause, because now I'm shifting to focus on the church. We don't know how long this gap will last. God has not told us that. But once God's work in and through the church is completed, his focus from the church will shift back to Israel. And at that point, that final 70th week would commence. And that final week is the subject of verse 27. So let's read that one more time. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The he here, um, actually, can you go to the next slide? I think there's one more chart there. Maybe not. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so we've added in. You can see that goes all the, that, that church age. We don't know when it's gonna end. We get to the 70th week and you can see uh, what the Antichrist is doing in that time period. The he there, the prince who has come, that is referring to the Antichrist. And we're told that in this final week of seven years, he would make a strong covenant with many. And the language of, of strong covenant, that, that's implying it's, it's more of a forced agreement. He's strong arming people into this. But he won't be immediately hostile to God's people. Halfway through that final week, three and a half years in, and that, that date is, is seen again in, later in the book of Revelation. But halfway through that final week, he breaks this covenant and he puts an end to sacrifice and offering and he will defile the Jewish temple. Jesus actually speaks about this in Matthew 24. He talks about the one who will enter into the Jewish temple and will make it desolate through abominations. And Jesus tells the Jewish people, when you see that, run. Go to the mountains, flee and hide because that man will be making war on God's people. In chapter eight, we saw a wicked tyrant named Antiochus and he defiled the temple. He sacrificed a pig in God's temple to Zeus and then he forced the Jewish people by threat of death and torture to forsake God and worship the Greek gods. We're not gonna go into all that again, but that man, as wicked and crazy as he was, was a mere foretaste of this prince who is to come, this antichrist, who will be far crueler and far more wicked in his treatment of God's people. This monster of a man will be empowered by Satan himself to make war on God's people as long as he's able. But verse 27 ends with another promise. The end of that man has already been decreed. God has decreed that man's destruction. The, the, the USS Lake Erie calculated and fired an incredible shot. God has done the same. He's calculated down to the day, down to the minute and the second. And this enemy of God, he's already on a collision course with the missile of God's judgment. Sure, he's gonna strike out, he's gonna seek to harm God's people, but his end is decreed. He, he can't disrupt God's plan for his people he can't stay God's hand of judgment. 
right? We, we saw in chapter two what happens to this man. That stone came in and shattered the giant statue. When Christ arrives, he will break the Antichrist in his kingdom. And Christ will establish a great and perfect and righteous kingdom. So this final 70th week will conclude at the second coming of Jesus. Now these words, as I've already said, were written 600 years before they came to fruition. God put this here to demonstrate the certainty of his word, the certainty of his promise. We can test and verify that God's word is indeed trustworthy and certain. And that means we can trust him to accomplish his plan, the sixfold purposes that he had for his plan in the beginning of verse 24. Number two, God's plan is certain because his word is certain. God's plan is certain because his word is certain. We began with those six purposes for uh, God's plan for Israel. Each of those plans is a promise because when God speaks, it will come to pass. The fulfilled prophecy that we've seen here so far throughout Daniel, they demonstrate that God will accomplish his plan. When we see how God predicts events 483 years apart down to the exact day, it proves to us that his word will not fail. And if it is that accurate, then when he tells us, hey, I'm gonna do these six things, they are as good as done. No power, no circumstance, no situation will prevent God from accomplishing his work. I mean, and that's the hope and joy that we have. The hope and joy of, of Christians rests in the reality that God's word is perfect and trustworthy. That God will do everything he's promised us. I mean, if God could go back on his word, that would be terrifying. We'd have no certainty that anything would ever turn out okay in the end. But God gave us this prophecy to remind us his word is trustworthy. And in his great love for us, He's offered us a glimpse of the future through this prophecy. And he did so because he knew we would be in this hardship, in this gap for a, long, for a long time. We don't know when that's going to end. And we're not facing the persecution that, that's talked about here in the end of verse 27, but we still deal with the hardship and the brokenness that exists in this world. And God wanted us to face that with confidence. So how does this shape our lives today as Christians then? Well, I think people work harder when they know what they're working toward. Do we have any fans of the office in here? That's, that's, that's a good number of hands. That makes me happy as your pastor to see that many fans of the office. Um, there's an episode uh, where Jim, not Jim Waring, but Jim Halpert, one of the salesmen, he reaches his commission cap. And he totally kills any incentive that he has to work. Why is he gonna work hard to sell more paper? Because he, cannot, he literally cannot make money for doing that work. And so because he has no motivation, he doesn't have that end goal, that end product that he's moving toward, he distracts himself by anything he can think of. And at first, it's a little bit, little bit productive. He tries to organize his desk. He goes out and cleans his car. And that doesn't work, that killed 20 minutes. And so then he decides to just bounce around the office and annoy everybody else, see what they're up to before he gets uh, reprimanded for not even looking like he is working. 
Once he no longer had that, that end goal to work toward, he became distracted. His work performance drops dramatically. And I think we find that something similar happens in our spiritual walk with Christ. Because our promised future with Christ motivates our faithfulness in the present. I think if there's a big idea for us to take away from this text, it's that. God's plan for his people's future motivates faithfulness in the present. Because if we had no idea the plans that he was working on out of sight, or if we felt maybe that God had abandoned us and had nothing for us in the future, I mean, it would be much harder to be faithful as we wait and hope for his plans to maybe be accomplished. But we're not uninformed, and God has not abandoned us. And these eight verses show us how precious individual believers are to God. They are his treasured possession. So God has told us, buckle up, because you're in it for the long haul. And I am working out my plan, and he's gonna do this, though, not according to our time, but to his. We don't know when Christ will return, but we know that he will. God has lovingly revealed that to us. And he's revealed what will happen when Christ returns. Those hardships that plague us, gone. No more sin, no more heartache. The world will no longer spiral in moral chaos and confusion, but Christ will reign and his righteousness and his glory will spread across the face of the earth. Perfect harmony in relationships among family members, among friends, perfect harmony in our relationship with God living physically in the presence of Jesus. We are not like employees working without or working with a commission cap. We know what is coming for those who are faithful. I think this is the same idea that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter three. This isn't gonna be on the screen, but I would like to read this anyways. Philippians chapter three, verses 13 through 15. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." We keep straining toward that goal, toward that end where Christ returns and we live and reign with him. We can push through the hardships that we face right now because they're temporary. We know that something so much greater is coming and that God is actively working to prepare that future for us. So endure your trials and your struggles and do so while being faithful to your Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you work to do that, You can trust that Christ has not abandoned you in that effort. He knows. He knows the burdens that you're carrying. Many of you guys are dealing with with difficult and weighty issues. You've lost loved ones. You're struggling with depression or anxiety. You're wrestling with habits of sin or, or temptation. Your marriage is struggling. You've watched your kids walk away from the faith and it breaks your heart. Maybe money is tight and you are are overwhelmed because you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet. Could just be conflict 
among your friends or among your family members. But whatever it is, you can endure that with faithfulness because God is closely tuned in. He knows what you are walking through. Just as he was tuned into Daniel, he is tuned in to each of you. You are precious to God and he knows your struggles intimately and he will deliver you from those in the end. But he's not even left us alone to deal with them in the meantime. Before Jesus left the earth, what did he promise his disciples? I will be with you to the end of the age. As you walk and stumble and struggle through hardship, Christ is walking alongside of you, sustaining you and strengthening you to be faithful until the end. Church, there will be hardship. You may be in a great season now, but the next season might not be so great. But you have not been abandoned in that. God is at work even if you do not see it. So in the meantime, do not let your eyes fall from Christ and onto your hardship. Because when you do that, that's when your circumstances start to feel overwhelming. That's when it starts to feel like your head is going under the water and you're going to drown. If we would have kept reading from Philippians 3, Paul goes on to say that those who have strayed from Christ are those who took their eyes off of Christ and put it on to worldly things. When our focus becomes how to gain the most pleasure or enjoyment or comfort right now, or when we let our hardships take our eyes off of Jesus because we're so focused on this immediate struggle, that's when we start to feel that that faithfulness to Jesus just isn't doable anymore. We're no longer looking at that motivation that God has prepared for us in the future. So give those hardships, those circumstances, give them the time and attention they need, but do so with your eyes focused and fixed on Jesus. Because if you keep your eyes up and on Jesus, he will strengthen you to walk through that hardship. And you're gonna find the motivation to be faithful even now in the present. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so blown away as I read a passage like this, Lord. And I, and I pray that those here today see this as well, see how incredible this prophecy is. Lord, and even more than that, I pray that they would be encouraged by it. That their, that their trust in your word, their trust in the fact that you are working an incredible future together for us. Lord, I pray that that would lead to, to, to faithfulness right now faithfulness for us as individuals and faithfulness together as one body. God, we thank you for the atonement that you worked through Christ, that you have given to us. God, we love you so much. We are so grateful for your word. And we ask that the rest of the service would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.